Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website that you navigate now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcasts are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, librarian and research associate here at Acton, and Just Dan. It's a two-man show today. Today, we'll be discussing Ketanji Brown-Jackson's nomination hearings and Ginny Thomas's stolen election text messages. But first, I want to go to Hollywood and avoid the right hand of Will Smith, which if you watch the Oscars last night, and uh, I have not seen numbers yet on how many people watched the Oscars, although the trend would suggest that if uh, you, you probably didn't watch the Oscars last night because fewer and fewer people are watching each year. But at one point in the show, Chris Rock, and I think it's worth noting as well that the Oscars have not had a host now for something like four years. Because the last person who was named to be the host of the show, the comedian Kevin Hart, people went and dug up a bunch of old tweets from him that they immediately feigned offense at, whether or not they were actually offensive, of course, always being irrelevant to that conversation. Uh, Hart was dumped. And they have had this kind of rotating group of people that aren't really hosts, but they're not really presenters. They're just people who talk and make bridges between the awards, which is the functioning of a host, but it's not a singular host. It's, it's all very bizarre and captured by the oddness of the, this current cancel culture moment. But Chris Rock was one of those people, and Chris Rock was on stage doing what Chris Rock does, which is making jokes, and he made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, the wife of Will Smith, uh, who is has a shaved head, primarily because she has alopecia, which causes your hair to fall out. Uh, and if you watch, and we'll include the, the link to the moment in the show notes, um, and, and fair warning that it will contain some profanity. You see, at first, uh, Will Smith laughs at the joke and then notices that his wife did not find it nearly as amusing as he did. And then he gets up on stage and smacks Chris Rock. So I, I think there's a couple of things that we can, a couple of angles that we can take uh, in, in talking about this. Uh, and I want to talk about it because... I think there's a couple of themes that run through this to me that are characteristic of our of our current moment. And one of them is the active debate. My friend uh, Emily Zanotti, formerly of The Daily Wire, now at Fox News, immediately tweeted out, come on, people, everyone knows this is fake. Uh, and I think that this is an open question. I was reminded of, um, I can't remember how many years ago it was now, but Sasha Baron Cohen um, descending from the ceiling of the Oscars and landing on Eminem. Um, Oscars maybe was the Grammys. I can't remember. Uh, and finding out later that it was a stunt. It was all staged. I legitimately have no idea if this was an authentic moment or if it wasn't. And I think that is part of why people are somewhat delirious about all this stuff because we don't We've lost a grasp on what is real and what is not. And the fact that it was at the Oscars, right, it was staged by Hollywood, just gives us all the more reason to think that this was a staged event 
for publicity purposes, um, which is an old tradition. It's the kind of thing that's gone on for a very long time. It's not as if it's new, but it's given the kind of internet era that we live in that it becomes very hard to tell immediately if things are true or if they are not. We'll get into those themes a little bit later. Uh, it It is a little bit bewildering to people. Um, and I, we will talk on some level about this presuming, taking for granted that it was an actual incident and that it was not staged. But I really think that that feeling like we're all being gaslit constantly and have no idea if things are true or not is one of the reasons that this moment seems to stick out beyond just the bizarreness of what we witnessed. This is one of the reasons that, you know, you know, back to Plato, people have distrusted actors and actresses and seen them as sort of, you know, uh, morally corrupt because they make their living pretending to be people that they're not. So even... You know, and with the with the viewership numbers tanking, you know, year after year after year, this is probably the most interested people have been in the Oscars. So there's the, there's a sort of material analysis that plays to the conspiracy. But I think when Will Smith takes the stage, because he later wins Best Actor, um. Chris Rock is clearly surprised at the incident itself when it happens. He is clearly shocked when he is slapped. Um, in Will Smith's acceptance speech, he's clearly still unhinged and rattled by the experience. So I, I'm fairly confident that what happened was, you know, a real and and serious incident of someone becoming unhinged and and lashing out at another person. Um, what was striking to me is in any other context, if I were in a bar and hit someone like that, I would be ejected immediately. If I were in a stadium, if I were here at Acton and did that to a colleague, I would be immediately removed. If I did not cooperate, authorities would be called. Will Smith went back and sat down. And this whole thing played out for another hour. And then he was called up to the stage to accept an award. And I think that's, that's a very striking way in which we often talk about how celebrities play by a very different set of rules. And this is clearly an example of that. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about the nomination of Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. Um, what, one of the interesting things in in there and uh, Cato, the Cato Institute, has called for her to be confirmed largely because she was a defense attorney, because she was a public defender at one point in time. Um, <clears throat> but as we talk about injustice within our criminal justice system um, because of the nature of our culture and our society right now. So much of that is always focused on questions of race. And however, we seem to ignore what I think you just highlighted there, which is more than race, money and celebrity status seem to me the clearest indicators of an unequal system of justice, that if you have wealth and status, that you can avoid the kind of severe punishments that would befall people who do not have wealth and status. And some of that is 
of just written into uh, the nature of the system. You can, if you have money, you can afford better attorneys, and better attorneys are going to give you better representation than the public defender you're likely to get. And not even just because the public defender isn't a good attorney. In many cases, they are perfectly good attorneys. They're just entirely overwhelmed by the amount of cases that they're carrying. Because they're not getting paid millions of dollars in legal fees, they're not paying as much attention to your individual case, and they're likely to miss things. And I think that's an incredibly good point about how, yeah, it just it all played out and it produces. Um, I, I think this is also one of the reasons that people roll their eyes at this kind of stuff. It it kind of sets a trap for Hollywood, which is already a source of so much derision and a lot of it justified that the Academy afterwards released a statement about the incident, which, again, does seem to uh, confirm or at least point to the idea that this was an authentic moment, that this wasn't staged. Uh, The Academy says, the Academy does not condone violence in any form. Tonight, we are delighted to celebrate our 94th Academy Award winners who deserve this moment of recognition from their peers and movie lovers around the world. The Academy does not condone violence in any form. Excuse me? I mean, if look, I am not one of the people who gets fit to be tied about the level of violence in Hollywood movies. I think much of it is a responsibility of parents to be aware of what their kids are consuming so that entertainment that is made for adults that contains more violent content is not consumed by younger kids. So, you know, Hollywood is going to Hollywood, and I'm not uh, overly concerned about that as its own issue. But the idea that the Academy uh, of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences does not condone violence in any form, you could easily go back through Best Picture winners to see some incredibly violent films. I mean, this is a group of people who feat uh, directors like Lars von Trier who create just truly disgustingly violent movies. Um, it is a weird statement for the Academy to make when so much of the saleability of the products that they produce are predicated on violence. And to kind of bring it back to people's inability to separate reality from fiction, there is something that happens to your brain when you're viewing entertainment that – Uh, You know, if you watched the show 24 back in the day, right, Jack Bauer can torture three different people in the course of an episode and you're rooting for him because you have this clear understanding of he's the good guy. They're the bad guys. This is one of the reasons it's so dangerous that we watch politics and so many other things in our world as entertainment now because it allows us to root for good guys and against bad guys and anything the good guys do to the bad guys is justified because we know where the line is drawn. The Academy not only has a history of condoning violence in this way, but it also has a history of giving awards as when it gave the best picture or the, uh, I forget if it was Best Picture or Best Director Award to The Pianist, directed by Roman Polanski, mm-hmm. who was then and is now a fugitive for just, uh, from justice, um, having fled the country during a sexual assault trial. Um, so this is, and, the, and the, the mere fact that Will Smith was allowed to stay to receive his award um, speaks to the fact that violence was condoned that very evening 
He was not removed. He was not asked to leave. He was given an award after the fact. Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously, the 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 hypocrisy of Hollywood is rank. Um, There's another interesting angle through which to view this, which uh, Rod Dreher had a piece at the American Conservative. And the the headline is sorry, but Chris Rock had it coming, um, which I believe you could just sub out some words in there and put in Ukraine for Chris Rock and you'd probably have his current foreign policy prescriptions. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, what struck me in this is uh, and it's a a fairly short piece. um, But what struck me in this is uh, he sums it up this way. In case you didn't watch it, Rock, the Oscars host, had made a tasteless joke referring to Jada Pinkett Smith's bald head. She suffers from alopecia, an autoimmune condition in which your hair falls out. She was visibly bothered by the crack. Here's the thing, though. Will Smith laughed at it when the camera was on him, and he chose a picture of the two reactions. Uh, he probably recognized a second later after looking at her that she was hurt, hence his violent gesture. I appreciate a man standing up for the soiled honor of his wife. But it's also the case that in showbiz, you have to be prepared to be insulted by comedians. It comes with the territory. I don't think Will Smith had a problem with this until he realized that he was going to be in trouble when he got home for not standing up for her. Nobody's wife or husband should be considered off limits for criticism and joking. But the jester has to know what's too far. Chris Rock crossed a line insulting Jada Pinkett Smith over a medical condition. What if she were disabled and couldn't walk and Rock made fun of her being in a wheelchair? Same thing. Had Jada Pinkett Smith chose to shave her head as a fashion statement a la Sinead O'Connor, she would have been fair game. But she shaved her head because her hair was falling out because of a disease over which she has no control. You don't pick on somebody who is suffering from a chronic or incurable disease. You just don't. Here's the interesting part. Uh, It would have been better had both Jada Pinkett Smith and her husband been able to laugh it off, but I understand why she couldn't and why he, as her husband, felt duty-bound to defend her against insult. I know everybody is mad at Will Smith today, everybody equaling Twitter, but count me as half-heartedly on Team Will. This is once again an opportunity for me to remind you that I am from the South and ours is a shame-slash-honor culture. The shame-slash-honor culture thing stuck out to me because I actually remember – reading very early on when uh, Donald Trump was running for president, this whole thing about uh, you can understand so much of Donald Trump's approach to politics through the lens of an honor culture, uh, people who have been disrespected, right? You know, the people uh, who he was standing up as a tribute for, um, people in the Rust Belt, people in Appalachia uh, who had been forgotten by big business and globalization, he was the one standing up for their honor and that so much of this was predicated on this idea of honor culture. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on like this at minimum as a means of understanding a whole lot of what is going on in our culture right now. Uh, but, the, you know, to my understanding of it, and correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, the there are a lot of cultures that aren't American that are very predicated on ideas of shame and honor. I mean, Japan is a very clear one. But that has largely not been the nature of American culture, at least as I think I understand it. So there's a whole sociological literature on this. Um, People talk about particularly the Scotch-Irish. 
It's not the South. It's the Scotch-Irish <laughs> as being the locus for this shame and honor culture. Um, you also get, um, you know, instances of, you know, different communities in America that are sort of singled out as being more along this axis than others. The notion that the way that the only way you could defend your wife's honor Hey, I'm not sure if her honor is impugned and the way we typically think about honor. Like this was a joke that, you know, Chris Rock's joke was that, uh, you know, he can't wait for G.I. Jane 2. Which is also a very dated joke. I mean, that movie came out in the 1990s. Yeah. And this was and this was this was a joke about, you know, what was a very successful film by at the time probably the world's most sought-after actress, Demi Moore. And, and, a, and a film very clearly about, you know, female women being empowered. I mean, she was trying to become a Navy SEAL in that movie um, and is very much the protagonist of that film and a hero in the way that that story is told. And there's also the fact that Will Smith laughed at the joke. Whatever, whatever you know, his, his wife very clearly didn't. And he very clearly noticed that after the fact. But it wasn't as if this this was an insult that triggered something inside of his ancestral memory. This is this is this is just not what it is. Um, there, and there are also other ways to approach that. One is to simply, you know, say to Chris Rock, cut this out. One is to simply take your wife and leave and say, I don't have to take this. My wife doesn't have to take this. I feel insulted. The fact that the academy would allow this to happen means that this is a place that we are not welcome and we will not grace with our presence. That didn't happen. What happened was a highly physical and again, open-handed slap. It was not, you know, Will Smith became unhinged. It was he got up, approached Chris Rock, slapped him, walked back to his seat, and then proceeded to yell obscenities at him from his seat. Um, so, this, I mean, this strikes me as it's it's a performance. I mean, the, part of the, the mechanics of the thing itself were so odd. He's laughing one second. He's getting up. He's walking in a very even, direct way. I mean, the, the footage is very strange. And this is where you were talking about originally people are like, is this a performance? Because this seems so strange. And I think, I think in a way it is a performance. And I think Will Smith sees it as a performance. And you can see this in his acceptance speech. Because he comes up, he's in tears. He's clearly shaken. And he says, begins, he was nominated for his performance as Richard Williams, uh, Venus and Serena's father in a film, uh, King Richard. He opens a speech with, Richard Williams was a fierce defender of his family. In this time in my life, in this moment, I am overwhelmed by what God is calling me to do and to be in this world. Making this film, I got to protect, and he, man, he, met, uh, he lists some of his uh, uh, co-stars. And he says, I am being called in my life to love people and to protect people and to be a river for my people. Now, that line is from Lawrence of Arabia. Abu Tai, 
in a very moving uh, speech, says, The Turks pay me a golden treasure, and yet I am poor because I am a river for my people. He goes on to say that actors get abuse in this speech and that people pretend this is okay. And then he says, recounts what Denzel Washington said to him moments before, which is that at your highest moment, be careful. That's when the devil comes for you. And I want to be a vessel of love. And I want to thank you to Venus and Serena. So it's it's he's on a cosmic stage. This is literally Chris Rock is literally demonized. That there are there are things, you know, there are things in this world that are conspiring against you, and you are this actor on a mission. And he talks about how and uh, later that quote, art imitates life. I look like the crazy father, just like they said about Richard Williams. But I, but love will make you do crazy things. There's a sense in which he's talking about what he has just done is an extension of the performance for which he won the award. And it is just bizarre. And I'm and I think people should frankly be concerned about Will Smith and where he is in his life right now. And because uh, it seems like he separated himself from reality. And, you know, when people are separated from reality and they lash out in violent ways, we usually don't applaud them. And that is precisely, and it's very awkward during this speech, how the audience reacts to it. But there is mixed applause. There's also moments of curious silence where there would usually be applause in such a speech. But he's literally, you know, there's still his professional peers. Some of them are standing up and clapping to this. And that does not help someone in that sort of situation. The separating from reality and uh, spousal relations is going to be a topic, which means we should probably move to the the Jeannie Thomas story next. Uh, but before we do, real quick, I I find myself caught between uh, two observations about this. Um, one of because I think they both have merit. Uh, one of them is to say that we we have spent a good amount of the last I don't know five, six, seven years. Having a conversation, which is a little bit of an odd way to put it, I guess, about uh, this contention that speech is violence, um, that silence uh, is also violence, uh, where we are equating all of these things that are not violence to violence, uh, that this idea that words can be as harming as an actual violent act. And uh, a friend of mine made the observation that this is the logical conclusion of that. When we are equating what people say to violent acts, then actual violent acts become very clearly justified because they have acted violently to you in the first place. On the other hand, it is entirely true that this is far from the first time and this last several years where this has become a theme that speech is violence. It is absolutely true that it's hardly the first time that somebody got punched for something that they said that was cross. I I think both of these things can be true at the same time. 
um, that, yes, obviously, uh, as you would point it out, if you had said something like that cross about someone's uh, wife in a bar, it would not be all that shocking if that person reared back and hit you. Um, th- th- you know, that kind of thing is documented in Hollywood movies going back as far as we can imagine, uh, as far as we can remember. But I think there also is a point to the observation that if we're going to talk about speech being violence, violence in reaction to speech is, I think, implicitly normalized there and accepted, which is why you did not have that kind of violent incident play out the way that it would have in a Hollywood movie if it happened in a bar, which would have been really one of two ways, either everybody descending into chaos, right, or people separating the two people who were trying to go at it. And you really didn't have either of those reactions. Either it was such a moral cause that it turns it into a all-out bar brawl, right, which is almost – it's almost farce at that point, right? In most cases when you're depicting something like that, it's in a comedy. It is not in a serious uh, dramatic film. But the more logical reaction would be to restrain both parties because you recognize that what they did was wrong and that it shouldn't have happened. But as you pointed out, the reaction of the crowd at the Oscars is fascinating because nobody knows what to do. Nobody knows if they should applaud Will Smith for defending the honor of his wife, if they should be horrified that this thing just happened on stage. Who's, they don't know whose side they should be on. They don't know who the hero is and they don't know who the villain is and they only sorted that out afterwards where you have the kind of online coalescing of opinion around you know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in this situation i don't even know that that's been settled yeah it is it's 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 bizarre there were some amazing shots of the crowd that i saw where people would do montages of of different reactions there's some people that are laughing there are some people that look have a look of sheer terror, you know, different Hollywood stars and that whole spectrum. And it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's just a very, very weird event that I think, you know, only, only when you're engaged in a celebration of performance does that sort of happen. Let's move on to the story that came out late last week about uh, – this is stemming from the January 6th investigation um, and we'll continue our theme here of uh, spousal relations, uh, relationships. Uh, Texts from Jeannie Thomas who is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, were revealed, and we believe that these are part, and I've actually not heard a final word on this, uh, that these were voluntarily turned over to the January 6th committee by uh, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff to President Donald Trump, uh, where you have some very very interesting things that Jeannie Thomas is sharing with Mark Meadows in these text messages um, that talking as we were before about things that seem very divorced from reality. Um, These seem very divorced from reality, uh, including one of them, the passage that she shared with Meadows, 
quote, Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators, elected officials, bureaucrats, social media censorship mongers, fake stream media reporters, etc., are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now and over the coming days and will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition, which is a very wild gateway pundit style accusation that obviously was not true. Uh, not representative of uh, actual reality. Well, the other thing that stuck out to me in their exchange is one of the things that Mark Meadows said back to Jeannie Thomas, uh, which is calling this uh, uh, the election fight a fight of good versus evil and added, evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. And it is that kind of explicit Christianization of what they're talking about, which is the idea that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump, that really caught my attention as being, I have no idea the sincerity of what Mark Meadows was saying at this moment. Um, And I I have on good authority from uh, people who are familiar with Mark Meadows that he is the kind of politician who is more than happy to say exactly what he needs to say to someone's face in order to make them happy. So, you know, one of two things is true. Either Mark Meadows believes that kind of rhetoric, that there is some kind of divine interest in all of this, or he believes that that's what Jeannie Thomas wants to hear from him. And I think both of those, either one, are somewhat alarming to me. So there's a very interesting connection between this and Will Smith. Because for Will Smith, this is, this, is an, you know, this is a struggle of the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And uh, the devil is behind many of these slanders. Just as it appears um, that Mark Meadows at least says that, you know, this is a struggle of darkness against a struggle of light. And, but one of the things that you don't see either thing I, I represented in either place is uh, the notion that evil exists in the world for, for other reasons. You know, our, our enemies aren't merely the devil, but the world, the flesh, and the devil – and the flesh is located in ourselves and our ability to be deceived and to deceive others and in, uh, in the world at large, um, you know, through all sorts of temptations. And this is a way of sort of working around that, of not having to struggle with yourself and not having to struggle with the world as it is, as opposed to a world of fantasy. Um, and you, I, 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 when I was reading these, I was going back and thinking of the night of the election. And this was a very close election. And there were ballots being counted in many states. We didn't really have a clear idea of the winner for days after election day, which is very unusual. Um, and I saw things circulating um, on this social media, which I've, you know did not censor any of this, <laughs> um, about things with strange ballots. And these were like, you know, people I know, people I know are very reasonable people, but, you know, people did not like that uncertainty and they wanted an explanation for it. And 
different folks were selling different explanations for it. And some of them got bought and maybe they just got bought in the moment of, oh, maybe this, maybe this is it. Maybe this isn't that. So I can't blame people for struggling to understand in the immediate aftermath. But this is a weeks, months after the fact. And with this language of the sort of, you know, uh, cinnamon barges to Gitmo, I was responded, uh, I was reminded of, uh, you know, there's a famous Twitter troll, Comfortably Smug, who talks about sending Democratic politicians and talking about uh, journalists to Gitmo as a joke. And it's sort of like, this is like an earnest statement of this. And this just seems so unhinged from reality that I have a hard time believing that folks who should know better believe it. And I think it says something about an overwhelming amount of confusion today that, you know, it's, it's easy to look at this and laugh at this and dismiss this, but it's like, these are serious people. And we are living in an era in which there is such low trust in our media institutions and in our political institutions that many folks go down this sort of path. And while I think it's important to stay grounded in reality and it's important to um, – call these what they are, which is conspiracy theories of sort of worst kind. Uh, it's also important to realize that this doesn't exist in a vacuum and that, again, this is not just somebody else. This is a problem that all of us uh, need to take responsibility for and work towards investing in our institutions, reforming them in positive ways where people can trust them again. I don't think I had appreciated fully uh, how much this topic connects to our previous topic when I was putting the show topics together for uh, for this podcast today. But I go back to the one of the first things that I said about the incident with Will Smith at the Oscars is was it real or was it not? And people aren't sure. And I think you hit on that uh, very well in that in your last statement about how a lot of these things, you know, people are looking for easy explanations for what is going on and things that they can't explain. And people have now are seemingly have a very hard time discerning what is real and what is not. But I also go back to the point that I made about viewing politics as entertainment. So much of politics now is equatable to kayfabe. And if you don't know what kayfabe is, it's the conceit in professional wrestling that treats it as if it is real and that everything is authentic when the audience knows that it's not. But what I think we've lost in all of that is an ability to discern in the professional wrestling setting, right? 
you know, you know that there's some there are some real physical things that they are doing, but it's a storyline and the storyline is written and sometimes it's improvised upon, but it's based on characters, people being actors, pretending to be people who they are not, pretending to live out storylines that they are not actually living out. But sometimes the lines of this blur. So you know, when I was um, in high school uh, during that era of um, uh, then it was the WWF, but now World Wrestling Entertainment, there was a storyline about how uh, one of the wrestlers, Triple H, had uh, kidnapped and married the daughter of Vince McMahon, the guy who is the chairman and founder. Um, they are re- He and Stephanie McMahon are married in real life. So there was an element of that that was true. And there was part, of course, the narrative of it that was created entirely for professional wrestling and world wrestling entertainment, sports entertainment, as it is called. I see a lot of that at play here of there are some people and and this is where you get into a very difficult time, just like Will Smith and Chris Rock telling who is acting and who is not acting, who is engaged in kayfabe and who is not, who is stating these kinds of conspiracy theories because they are playing to an audience and who actually believes them. And I just feel like we are all walking around with our eyes down and we do not know what is real and what is fake and we also don't seem to want to insert ourselves into the messy and difficult business now of sorting them out I mean in some cases it it seems to me that like what Jeannie Thomas that thing that I read to you about barges off of Gitmo sounds so transparently nutty that you would have a hard time believing it and yet I know that there are people who do believe that these things are true. They are uh, one of the best explanations for the QAnon movement that I saw was that it is it's essentially like role playing games that people uh, just have not found enough meaning in their lives and are looking for you know, LARPing at something else. They want to participate in something more interesting than the life that they actually have. And as a result, they, you know, kind of first uh, insert themselves into this character story. And then you lose the ability to tell the difference between the character and the actual person. I think this is I think this is absolutely the right thread to go down with this. And I'm thinking uh, now of the Ray Harryhausen classic Clash of the Titans because there are a number of lawsuits that um, folks in, in President Trump's legal team had come about that were referred to in the text as uh, release, you know, filing these as releasing the Krakens. Which is a line in that film. It is literally, you know, it is, you know, at, at the point where the great monster is released, it's release the Kraken. And to show another way how that has in, entered into our actual life, uh, this year the National Hockey League added a 32nd team in Seattle, and the name of the team is the Seattle Kraken. Yeah. It is, it's just, it's stranger than fiction. And you have, you know, and it also seems like a very, a very, the action seems so discordant from the theory. I have a friend who grew up in a sort of, you know, 
very insulated, conspiracy-driven sort of childhood. And he was, uh, you know, sweet on a young girl about his age when he was a teenager. And he went over to family dinner, you know, for, you know, nice supervised socialization. And they're eating dinner and the father is sharing sort of the latest conspiracy. And he asked the father, why are we just talking about it? Why don't we try to infiltrate the conspiracy? And this look of horror comes on the father and he's never invited back. But it's sort of like, if this exists, this fighting it with these sorts of lawsuits and with this sort of like political action seems very, very strange and just, and just not, it seems like it can't be, it can't be serious. Um, on some level. And this is why it's, it, to me, so much of it is playing with gasoline and what I think the, one of the misunderstandings has been in the way that we have talked about the stolen election uh, rhetoric and what happened on January 6th has been mistaken is uh, this observation I've heard from um, a, a couple of people, but I think it's absolutely correct in that uh, it is talked about from the left as that these people are anti-democracy. And Look, you and I both know from our professional work here at Acton that there are people out there um, on the political right who are at minimum skeptical of the value of democracy, if not outright hostile to democratic systems. Um, but you know these these are not the people that we are talking about in the conversation of what happened after the election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Um, if you're going to take the people uh, like what Ginny Thomas is talking about here in these texts, if you're going to take it, you know, as that they actually believe it, they're sincere here. They're doing this because they're deeply concerned about democracy. If an election like this had been stolen and we, you know, we do have a uh, an example we can point back to in American history where you know, we do not know for certain, but the likelihood that ballot box stuffing in Texas and in Cook County, Illinois in 1960 gave that election to John Kennedy is a very plausible theory given what we actually know and what has actually been documented in yeah. a way that what has been said about what happened in uh, 2020 is just it, it lacks plausibility. Tilden versus Hayes in 1876 is another one. Yes. So we, we have those uh, examples uh, back through history that we can point to. If an election had been stolen like that, it would be an enormous crime. An absolutely enormous crime. One of the biggest in the history of the American Republic. And if we take these people on face value, they're deeply concerned about democracy. But the problem is, as we've identified, um, these things aren't true. And as a result, we, we have this confusion uh, in between what is true and what is not true. And we have people who are... Uh, play acting and we have people who are taking the play acting seriously and as a result it is this big gigantic mess where and I, again I really think this stems from as people have kind of lost meaning in their lives as these institutions have started to fail the idea of institutions being that you bring people together to do something as they've stopped being 
organizations that come together to do things, as we have become more atomized, uh, that loss of meaning means that, you know, as, as uh, I believe it's Chesterton who famously said that, you know, when, um, you know, you stop believing in God, it's not that you'll believe you believe in nothing. It's that you'll believe in anything. Yeah. And you look at, you know, let's say, again, there are, you know, were rules changed in light of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic in terms of, you know, ballot collection, this sort of thing? Absolutely. Were often those changes implemented undemocratically without the consent of state legislatures? Absolutely. Those are legitimate concerns. People have legitimate concerns about election security. Um, those are those are all legitimate concerns. But this is something wholly on another level. And I don't know if this is just, you know, so you have those mundane sort of reform things that you could do. Um, but those don't get the attention. Right. Um, those are the fixing things. the electoral count act of what is it eighteen eighty three? I can't. I cannot remember um, yeah. what the year is. But fixing the electoral count act, which was the subject of so much of the what precipitated January six, is the kind of thing that everybody should be able to easily agree on. Members of Congress should easily agree on it. But you know, I actually saw this in a poll over the weekend that the number two issue for both Republicans and Democrats going into this upcoming election is election security. And it is – I just can't escape that on both sides it is predicated on on abject falsehoods, that on the right it's the kind of stuff that we've been talking about today. And on the left it's this belief that um, you know any – any legislation that is passed to in any way restore the status quo ante before COVID voting uh, uh, changes were made is some uh, incredible assault on democracy. And it's really not healthy. I, I want to move on, but I want to ask one question before we do, which is, uh, as we talked about with Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith earlier, uh, how fair is it to hold – Clarence Thomas in any way responsible for the views and, and actions of his wife. Uh, now, this matters in a certain in, – in a way that I think is very clear. And I think we should stipulate this, that any further cases that come up before the court having to do with stolen election stuff for January 6th, Clarence Thomas should recuse himself from those because of how, you know, the relationship with his wife is just so abundantly clear. And it's the kind of thing for which recusal exists. But how fair is it to hold Clarence Thomas in any way responsible for what Jeannie Thomas has done? We don't know Justice Thomas's views on these. These aren't Justice Thomas's texts. Mm -hmm. You know, they're 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 Jeannie Thomas's texts. And as we discussed earlier, we don't even know how much Jeannie Thomas really believes some of this stuff because it's so outlandish. So I, you know, the presumption should always be, you know, I think, you know, whenever you're, you know, I think you're absolutely right about recusal and that sort of thing. But I think, you know, there have been some calls to impeach Justice Thomas on account of this. Um, I think that's unwarranted. And one of the nice things about the court 
and how it functions is, you know, there are opinions issued with these rulings. And it's very clear that Justice Thomas, agree or disagree with him on his judicial philosophy, rules very consistently with what it is um, and what it has been for years. Um, so I don't think I don't think you can hold him in any way professionally responsible other than the recusal, you know, if obviously if, you know, anything specific to this were to come before the court. Um and 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 we simply do not know his personal views, um, and and I think it's wrong to speculate without without you know a clear statement from Justice Thomas himself. I agree with that uh, entirely, and I think one of the advantages here is actually Clarence Thomas's judicial philosophy. Uh, Clarence Thomas, if you read his opinions, shows his work. Right, he shows you how he arrived at the opinion. Um, very much in the way that, uh, and, and there are some slight differences that we won't really get into, but this does dovetail beautifully into our next topic, um, that there are slight differences between the judicial philosophy held by Clarence Thomas and the one held by Antonin Scalia. But Scalia would often make the point of you know, that his judicial philosophy would lead him to conclusions that he doesn't like, but nonetheless, they are true. And you show the work, either originalism or textualism. You look at what the either the clause of the Constitution or the statute says, and what it says is what it means. Um, and that work is, I think, very clearly elucidated in Justice Thomas's writing. So, I, I, in a way, <laughs> um, if he had a more you know progressive living Constitution philosophy, whereas you know I once heard Justice Thomas describe it that there are two ways to interpret the Constitution. You know, basically his way, where you find out what it meant and that's what it means, and there's a mechanism to change that meaning through legislative process if you don't like what the law says, or you can make it up. Um, if you were making it up, it would be a different scenario, would be a different situation. Because if you're just reading the emanations and penumbras of the U.S. Constitution, well, then, you know, it's you can you can stare at it long enough like a Rorschach test and see whatever you want in all of that. But because of the nature of Thomas's writing and his philosophy, uh, he's not immune to criticism in this circumstance. I agree. We don't know what his views on all of this are, but I think he is actually helped in a professional case by the nature of his judicial philosophy. And speaking of judicial philosophy, Katanji Brown Jackson uh, last week had her nomination hearings before the uh, Judiciary Committee of the United States Senate. I think there are a couple of interesting things to briefly talk about here before we wrap up the show today, um, which uh, one of them being, well, maybe I should just start out here, Dan, with a question to you. What is a woman? I am neither a sociologist nor a biologist. Um, however, I can give you the sort of, you know, Genesis one through three account, which is how I think we should think about these issues. And, you know, I think, you know, men and women are both created by God. I think they are both, you know, images of God. I think uh, they share the task of bringing fruitfulness to the earth. They both suffer under the curse of sin and death. 
And uh, one of women's special roles is to bring children in the world, particularly, uh, you know, in the fullness of time, to bear Christ into the world in the form of Mary and to deliver man from the consequences of sin and death. Um, and that's a very different definition than you'll get from a lot of people. It, it definitely is. And I, what I thought was, you know, we were back to talking about what we were talking about last week with uh, Leah Thomas, uh, the transgender NCAA swimmer at the, univers- swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I, what I thought was really interesting about it, and if you didn't follow this, uh, Marsha Blackburn, senator from Tennessee, asked Ketanji Brown-Jackson uh, what the definition of a woman is. What I find interesting in her response is – it's not the response that I think it, if she's avoiding answering the question and, and to be clear, avoiding answering questions is the entire name of the game in these nomination hearings. Uh, you don't want to have to portray yourself as ever possibly having had a thought on anything whatsoever. And it leads to some absurdities like David Souter, um, a man who had been a federal judge claiming that he had never had a conversation or a thought about the issue of abortion, uh, which everybody knows is untrue. Again, the problem of people saying things that they know to be absolutely untrue. We've been talking about this entire episode uh, once again being an issue in these nomination hearings. But if the presumption was that she wouldn't answer what a woman is because she's afraid of the far left fringes that uh, demand some kind of adherence to their orthodoxy about, um, you know, uh, gender theory. What's interesting to me is that's the wrong answer then. Uh, Seeding to biology is absolutely, I mean, your point of uh, where you added, uh, you're neither a sociologist nor a biologist. The sociologist would have been the better answer to all of this. Um, Now, she avoided it because it is a trap and it is more political kayfabe and it is more people play acting. Um, And in a sense, she's wise to avoid it in that case, because who wants to walk into a trap? Uh, But I, I thought it was Interesting to me that people were so focused on the biologist part of it without recognizing that even by the, their own assumed indictment, that's not even a good answer. This is the thing we, t- we talked about last time with Sam. Conservatives should not want to reduce this to biology or bare physicalism. There is more to the experience of being a man and being a woman than plumbing. And when you reduce it to that in an effort to sort of like, oh, get the quick, easy dunk on the sort of gender ideology of today, you lose a theological account. You lose an account that encapsulates um, – sort of all of those social norms that we should want to preserve beyond just a bare distinction of plumbing. There is something to, you know, you know, you can, you know, there, there was a collection of essays I read years ago uh, named after the Bob Dylan song, The Man in Me, essays on the male experience, which had Norman Mailer, Franz Kafka talking about the life of the bachelor is moving into increasingly smaller and smaller and smaller homes until you're a coffin. 
And these sorts of things, there is a rich cultural tradition of masculinity and of femininity that also should not be devalued and dismissed and that is part of how we are men and women in the world. And if you don't talk about those cultural norms, if you don't talk about the sort of, you know, uh, God's design for men, for women, for marriage, for family, and if it's just, you know, and feel free to bleep this out, is boys have penises and girls have vaginas, that's not a, that's not a better understanding. That is just as impoverished as a purely sociological, oh, I self-identify as. A great point. Uh, and the other thing that <laughs> one of the other things that struck me about, as I mentioned, and the nature of these hearings is so much of it is lying and we know that it's lying. Um, and she could have lied and given a better answer to that question. I mean, she could have said pretty much anything and people would have assumed. I mean, th- there's you, this is one of those cases where you could write a better answer for her off the top of your head than she came up with, which is, you know, the um, – you know, you could even incorporate some of the, you know, I'm not a sociologist or a biologist. You know, there are legal definitions of what it means to be a woman, which is where it intersects with what her job would be on the United States Supreme Court. And she had already given these like head tips towards um, the idea of uh, originalism and textualism, which, as um, uh, Dan McCarthy at National Review pointed out, it's a huge victory for that judicial philosophy that even rhetorically, even if it's only rhetorical, you have gotten people who don't agree with that philosophy to debate on its terms, uh, which is an advance. Uh, it is an advancement of that philosophy from being – it's one of the incredible stories uh, you know, from the founding of the Federalist Society in the 1980s, how they have reoriented the nature of the courts – Towards those views of originalism and textualism from really just what uh, the system had been prior, which was if somebody was qualified and by qualified, we mean that they went to all the right elite, very expensive schools, then you just got acclamation that they could be on the Supreme Court and then they do whatever they wanted to do when they were up there. Um, But she'd already given those head tips towards uh, these definitions of textualism and originalism. Now, whether or not she actually believes all of that, well, we don't really know. And I guess we're going to find out because it's very likely she is going to be uh, – her nomination to the court is going to be confirmed. The other thing that stuck out to me about this as well is this is just a really good reminder to me of why we don't have cameras in the Supreme Court and we probably never should. Um, and I was encapsulated perfectly to me in this little vignette which was uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz um, after he did his uh, performance in these questionings. uh, Immediately when he's done, uh, a photographer, a camera caught him opening up his phone and checking his mentions on Twitter, which is just too on the nose that immediately after he is done giving a performance meant to get him talked about, 
he's seeing who's talking about him. And that is, to me, the corruption that comes with people with cameras in front of them. You know, one of the best observations that I heard in recent years about Congress is that the people who serve on like the select committees on intelligence that meet in a bunker underneath the Capitol with no cameras and no recording devices like their work on those committees the best because they can be honest with one another. They can have conversations. They can admit when they don't know something. And I just want people to think for a minute if the process and everybody to some extent thinks that the process for these judicial uh, confirmation hearings are farce. Imagine what it would be like if that were the status quo of the Supreme Court. I don't think that the court's reputation would be helped by it. And it's a good reminder that transparency isn't always a good Absolutely. No. And part of what this needs is, I mean, you need a citizenry that changes these incentives. Um, And that's a tough road to hoe. Um, Again, going back to our conversation last week, if we really want a robust conception of gender grounded in faith and reason, we've got a long way to go in our communities, catechizing young people, talking about these in a comprehensive way, in a reasoned way before the public, not where we're trying to score points, not where we're trying to get the bare admission of biological reality and calling that a victory. Um, this is, this is a, 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 a question of a restoration and reformation of civilization itself. And it has taken us hundreds of years to get here and it will take us hundreds of years to get back. And that's not a time horizon that anyone in Washington, D.C. is operating on. Let's call it a wrap here. I want to remind you that we want to answer your questions and you can leave us your questions in one of two ways. We encourage you to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a question when you leave that review and we will answer it here on the program. Or you can email it to unwind at acton.org. Any questions you want to shoot our way, we will consider and we will answer on the program. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind and remind you again, if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look down in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or you could just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Once again, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>